Good morning again. I just wanted to mention uh, with the Clarkston stuff, I actually had the opportunity to go down there, was it last weekend, I guess? Yeah, w- uh, my wife and I went down there, and, and Nora went down there last weekend and had a, a conversation with uh, Eric Holland, and uh, we we're talking about even there, this is, this is so interesting to me, even there, a, a convert they had from uh, uh, Islam, uh, he, d- he decided, you know, I'm saved, but I'm not going to share the gospel. And, and Eric was just telling me about this, how he, he's, uh, I'm saved, but I'm not going to, uh, you know, share and stuff. And, and that is more dangerous as, as a Muslim. Um, but here's, here's something interesting that he said. He said, he's like, but I've been telling the guy, no, this is what you become as a Christian, is someone who shares the gospel. And he said, I even used an example of myself of, yes, I'm here as a missionary, but we're all on mission. Uh, a missionary is just someone who changes location uh, to, to be on mission in that other location, but all Christians are on mission right where they are. And, and I, I hear Eric saying that, and I'm just like, amen, brother. I love that because that's exactly what I want for my life, that I am, no, I'm not a missionary in that sense, but I am on the mission that God has given me right here where God has placed me. And God may call you to go uh, some other place, and that's great. Uh, but if he doesn't, then you're to be on mission right where you are. And so that was a, a word from uh, Eric Holland, and uh, it was great to meet them uh, in person and talk with them. All right. So this week in our, our sermon uh, series, we are picking back up in Genesis. Uh, we paused uh, for three weeks for the evangelism initiative, uh, talking about uh, evangelism and, and what that is. And uh, then we had uh, Chris Petty uh, preach here last week, and that was great. But this week we're going to pick right back up in Genesis chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there. We'll be in 3, 14 through 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the verses are also in the notes. Um, but if you have a Bible, it'd be great to, to go there. But so far in this study, I know I've got to kind of catch us back up for where we've been, right? Because we're just kind of hopping in the middle. So far in our study of Genesis, uh, we, we had the, at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and we, we talked about that for, for quite some time, that uh, the, the world we live in, this is not just a random occurrence, this, this isn't evolution, this isn't uh, mindless, meaningless, uh, this world we live in, but it is a world created by uh, an all, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God who is from everlasting and will be until everlasting. And so we have... This God creates us and everything, and we are under his authority. We saw that he has Adam and Eve uh, placed in the Garden of Eden. This was a utopia of sorts, perfectly suited for these humans to live and thrive and enjoy God in communion. Adam and Eve had it made. We have not ever known a single day uh, that was as good as Adam and Eve knew it. I can promise you that. They had it so good. But what we looked at the the last time we were in Genesis was Genesis 3. The serpent, or or Satan, you know, behind the serpent, begins to tempt Eve uh, specifically, but Adam and Eve. And uh, Eve, uh, again, specifically begins to distrust the goodness and the provision of God. She begins to distrust the word of God. And in the end, she goes her own way. She rebels against the one command God had given them. He said, you can eat of any tree of the Garden of, of, evil but, of Eden, but do not eat 
of the tree in the middle of the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We have Satan come in that says, did God really say you couldn't eat of that? Ooh, man, that's, that's an oppressive God. He, he doesn't really give you freedom. You know, the, the whole reason he doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because you'll be like him. No, no, you, you won't surely die. And so Eve eats, and Adam eats as well. And we talked about, uh, when we were in Genesis, just by, by way of reminder, that the sin uh, was not just the taking of the fruit and eating it. That was the outward action of the sin, but the true sin was their hearts being turned away from the goodness and the provision of God, a distrust, a, a belittling of who God says he was and what he said he would do for them. They belittled that. They turned against him in sin. Satan says, nothing's going to happen. But we saw, uh, last time we were in here, that immediately havoc was wreaked on the human race. Immediately. If you, if you remember, uh, they, they ate of it, and then their eyes were opened. Remember that? Their eyes were opened. They realized that they were naked. And we talked about that there was no reason for them to be ashamed at that time up until sin. Because now their, their, their nakedness, their purity was stained with the guilt of sin. So they felt this guilt and shame. They had become depraved was the word that we used. They, they were guilty. They were shameful. Yet, rather than running to God, they go and hide from God. You remember that? They, they go and hide from God. They sew fig leaves together to try to cover themselves, to cover their shame rather than going to God. They hide from God. Then when God... Uh, you know, begins talking to them, asking what they have done, they begin making excuses rather than repenting to God. Rather than uh, protecting one another, Adam and Eve, we see Adam specifically saying, it was that woman that you gave me. She's the one who led me into sin. Rather than protecting. Immediately, the human race was depraved. Immediately. The human order was broken because of sin. They, they, they knew, uh, th they had the knowledge of good and evil, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they received it. They, they knew good, they already knew good before they ate of the tree, but now they knew evil. And they knew it because they did it, they committed it, they experienced it, and their heart became that, that evil way. We're not going to talk much about that depravity this week, so I just want to make sure we, we recall that, that the human race became depraved. I'll just go ahead and say this. Uh, I might mention it again later, uh, but in chapter 4, we'll get to it uh, next week, I believe. Um, we see Adam and Eve uh, have a child, Cain, and then they have uh, Abel. And does anyone remember how the story between Cain and Abel ends? Murder. The human race, the human order was destroyed immediately by sin. Okay. But what we're going to focus on, zoom in on this week, is not only uh, was the human race uh, broken, depraved because of sin, it doesn't stop there, but God actually pronounces a series of curses upon all creation. God pronounces a series of curses. And that, that seems maybe odd. We like to think of, uh, well, this world is broken um, not, but it's not God's fault. I agree, it's not God's fault, but it was God who pronounced the curses. We, that's what we see. God, God pronounces the curses here in chapter 3. And so what we're going to look at today is basically what were those curses? What, what was it that God pronounced?
pronounced. But more importantly, really, I believe, is why did God pronounce those curses? So let's look at it in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24. I'll read through it if you want to follow along. It says there, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for, a- made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the field, work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That is God's word. That is the curses uh, pronounced by God. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come upon a, a difficult text here, a sad text, uh, where we hear about human sin, moral depravity, and the just results of that sin. Lord, would you help us today to, to see clearly these curses that you placed on this world that we currently live in. But God, would you help us to see your justice, your righteousness, and your holiness in light of these things? God, would you help us uh, to, to understand that these are right curses, that you are good in spite of them? God, let us fall at your feet in awe as we think of what took place here. Bless your word and, and uh, me as I, I preach it. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. So again, man becomes depraved immediately because he gets this knowledge of good and evil. The thing that God said, uh, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's this spiritual death, this spiritual depravity that takes place. But then God pronounces these curses. So we're going to look at what are these curses, and again, more importantly, why does God curse uh, all creation? Uh, You see there in your notes, my first point. This This is something I want us to get. The first point is, the curse reveals the holiness of God. The curse reveals the holiness of God. 
Let me tell you why I think this is so important for us today, and then, then we'll look at it a little more in depth. In today's culture, maybe more than ever, most likely more than ever, in today's culture, in the world as we would call it, and even in today's churches, oftentimes, sadly, God is thought of as, as weak, as, as, as tolerant. God is thought of as this pushover in the sky, you know, that he just wants us to like him, so he's got to tolerate and, and, and just allow anything. He'll just be lenient. You know, um, <laughs> I, I was thinking about this. I've got uh, Nora, and I plan on raising her in the, the discipline and admonition of the Lord. But when I'm watching my nieces and nephews, it's, it's not really the same. I'm more likely to, to laugh at uh, the bad things they do. Does that make sense? Um, God is not like me as an uncle. <laughs> God, God is a just and holy God. And that's what we're going to look at is God is not this pushover in the sky who the world, again, thinks he, he sees our sin, he sees our shenanigans and just says, ah, kids will be kids, humans will be humans, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. We may even think of God as one who sees the sins on this earth, doesn't like it, you know, oh, I don't, I don't like that they're doing that, but, you know, I'll just, I'll just brush it under the rug and forget about it. We might be tempted to think of God in that way. Once again, the world uh, obviously thinks of God in that way if, if uh, they believe in him at all, but even in our churches, we have belittled God by thinking that he is, is weak, that there is no justice in God. You remember, uh, we talked about just a moment ago, that that is uh, exactly the thinking that the serpent, Satan, tried to instill in humankind from the beginning. God, God is weak. He, he, he will tolerate your sin. He'll brush it under. Don't worry about it. Listen to this. Uh, I'll just read it for you. Now, the serpent was more crafty, that's a deceptive kind of crafty, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Listen to this. This is what our culture screams. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Ah, God said that, but God says a lot of things. You know, he's just being cranky. That God, you know, don't, don't worry about him. You can go against what he says. You know, the whole reason God doesn't want you to do this is he doesn't want you to be like him. That's what Satan goes further to say. It's actually that God is withholding something good from you. Don't worry about it. Just push the limits. That's what Satan was doing from the beginning. And that is absolutely, if you think about it, the way our culture has turned, if they believe in God at all. Oh, he's just forgiving. God is love. Love wins. And we'll talk about it. God is love, and love does, in a sense, win. But the problem is we forget about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. I wish I had like three sermons to talk about exactly what the holiness of God is. But suffice it to say, God's holiness is, is this, this otherness. He is unmatched, unparalleled in the universe. There is none like him. He alone is God. 
that is true in his nature, his essence. There is no one like God. You even think of the Trinity. We say God is like an egg, or he's like water, or he's like a husband and a wife and a child. No, God is not like any of those things, because God is 100% holy. There is none like him, nothing in creation. There are things that have similarities from a certain angle, but all analogies even for God break down because God is God. He is holy in his nature. He alone is God, creator of the heavens and the earth. We have the holiness of his character, who God is in and of himself. He is fully good. He is fully righteous. He is fully just. God, in his moral perfections, is holy. There is no darkness in him at all. That's what uh, 1 John 1, 5 says. There's no darkness in God at all. James 1, 13 says that God cannot even be tempted to sin. And there's a whole lot behind that I would love to get into more. But God cannot sin because sinning would be to go against his nature. God did not find a rule book and say, okay, so this is what it looks like to be good and pure. No, God was good and pure, is good and pure. And he says, this is what it looks like to be good and pure. God writes that book, if you will. In fact, he did write that book for us, the Bible. And God says, I am holy, and I have created you creatures, and you too must be holy, as I am holy. That is the holiness of God. But we understand that mankind sinned against him, as we saw the last time we were in Genesis, that their hearts turned away from this holy, completely other God. They they refused to, to believe in his goodness. They refused to believe in his provision. They sinned against him. They rebelled against him. They spit in his face. And God, being perfectly holy, cannot allow sin. He cannot tolerate it. He cannot be lenient with sin. I was trying to think of uh, good, good analogies for this. But none really, really came to me. God can no more allow sin than I can just choose to stop breathing and expect to live. God cannot remain God who is perfectly holy, perfectly just. He cannot remain God and and allow sin any more than I could just say, I'm going to stop breathing yet remain a human. It's not possible. God cannot not be holy. He cannot not be just. That means The punishment will fit the crime each and every time. There there will be a perfect punishment, and it will perfectly be uh, for that crime. That is God. That is the holiness of God. And and the problem is, once again, we think of God as this cosmic genie up there, right? (laughs) Uh, Oh, I'm running low on finances. It's time to hit my knees and pray to God. Maybe he'll pull me out of this problem. God, I promise if you help me make it... uh, past this mortgage payment i'll I'll never do this again and i'll never do this again all of a sudden our morals change when we need god when we need this genie i'm in this hard time god this cosmic therapist would you just please help me to feel better uh and if you'll do this then i'll fall in line but then the second things go well for us what do we do (laughs) we walk away from god again we go right back to doing those things we do not understand the holiness of god We do not understand the seriousness 
of sin. The way we profane God's name each time we choose something over him, choose something against him in his word. So I want to tell you, we have that the the curse reveals the holiness of God. Let me explain that, and then we'll look at those curses individually. You think about all of these curses that we're going to look at, all of them are constant, continual reminders this side of eternity. Okay? Uh, We'll look at it, but let me just, for example, you have the the serpent uh, will, will forever be on its belly. This is a continual thing. These didn't just affect Adam and Eve, I guess is what I'm trying to say. This was for all time until the new heavens and the new earth. These curses would remain. Why? Because they were to be constant and continual reminders of the holiness of God. So again, using the snake as an example, the serpent as an example, when we see a serpent, we are to think the holiness of God holiness of God. God is holy. That is what happens <laughs> to, to a being that, that rebels against God. Uh, the, the serpent was more a tool used by Satan, but anyway, we'll get there. Do you, do you understand that? We are supposed to see the curses in this world, and we are supposed to think the, the world is this way because God is so holy. He is not to be toyed with. He is not to be played with. He is not the lenient uncle in the sky. That is not who God is. God is not mean or vindictive. He is not some oppressive dictator, but God is holy. And that's what we need to see. So let's look at these curses, these reminders for all generations that God is holy. The first one we see is is to the serpent slash Satan. It's kind of to both uh, in, in verses 14 through 15. It says there, uh, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Because you have done this. God wasn't just walking around and saying one day, you know what? I don't like serpents. I'm going to curse them. I don't, you know, because you have done this. And we'll see that again with uh, Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Because this is a, a cause and effect. There's a punishment fitting the crime. Why? Because God is holy. This is the justice of God, the holiness of God, in the face of the, the, the holiness of God being profaned, being mocked. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We were not there. It's hard to know exactly the, the nature of this curse on the serpent. What, what, whatever this curse means, we know that it is a humiliation of this species of animal that Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve. He says there, On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. There are uh, many theologians, I I really haven't landed on a side on this one yet, usually I land on a side before I tell you things, but there are many theologians who feel like serpents, before the curse, had legs, that they were more gecko-like, or, you know, they they had legs and they they walked, that their belly did not slide on the ground. There are many who think that, and that, that makes some sense there, because it says there, part of the curse is, on your belly 
you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And that, that would just be, again, that the snake isn't, uh, th the way they eat is not pretty. <laughs> they, they are eating on the ground and, and having to eat dust as they eat their food. It is the humiliation of the serpent. Why? Why does God humiliate the serpent? To be a continual reminder to us, this is what happens when God's name is profaned. This is what happens for those who work with Satan. I want to say this just as an aside. Uh, serpents, snakes are not self-aware creatures, right? Like I'm aware of my nature. When I'm humiliated, my cheeks get red. I'm embarrassed. You know, I, I might be afraid to do that thing again. Snakes don't, don't feel their humiliation, okay? We don't have to feel bad for snakes that they were cursed. Snakes aren't even moral creatures. The fact that Satan used a, a, a serpent, um, you know, to do this really isn't the fault of the serpent. But God says, because of my holiness, I will curse this non-self-aware creature as a continual reminder. So that's what we have there. The humiliation of the serpent. God is holy. This is what happens when you go against this holy God. The next thing we'll look at is God seems to turn his attention now from the serpent directly, the, the animal, uh, to the, the one behind the serpent, Satan. And last time we looked at this, we saw from Revelation uh, that this uh, ancient, ancient serpent was the devil. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 15. I will put, this to, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What we see here, I, I'm focusing on how this curse affects humankind at the moment, okay? This, this was a curse against Satan, absolutely. He thought that he was winning the day. He thought that he was winning humans. God's saying here, no, you're not winning. I'll put enmity between you and between them. But for humans, let's look at what, 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 me, what does this mean that there will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring? The woman's offspring is all of us, by the way, every human ever since. That would be the woman's offspring. What this means is that this side of eternity, once again, there will continually be spiritual conflict. Have you ever thought about that? That this curse upon Satan, that there would be this enmity, is actually sort of a curse on us as well. I don't know about you, but Satan uh, tempts me. Satan... Um, tries to take my eyes off of Jesus. This isn't a devil-made-me-do-it thing. This is, this is the Bible. The Bible says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That, that means that, that we have Satan, this entire time we abide on this earth, trying to tempt us the same way he did uh, Adam and Eve, the same way we see him tempt Jesus, even in the desert you can think about, the same way he uh, tempted Judas, the same Satan tempts us, we are having to fight this spiritual battle all of our lives that is a curse on us whereas before, we, we were not having to fight this battle, humankind was not, that's part of the curse we'll, we'll be looking at this more we'll be coming back to this, so don't worry I didn't miss some huge things in those verses, but we'll move on from the, the serpent and Satan to look at the next one. Let's look at the, the curse on the woman. Verse 16. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. What we need to see here is God had created the world perfect, ideal for humans. Genesis 1.28, God tells them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And we get this idea that the, the husband and the wife, they'll come together and the, the, the woman will bear children and it will be this beautiful, painless thing that she will just continue to multiply and then the, the children will multiply and it will be this, this beautiful thing. Be fruitful and multiply the earth. But what does it say here? Instead of just multiplying the earth in joy, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Isn't that interesting? The same word is used there. Multiply and fill the earth. Now, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. This was the honor of the woman. Uh, uh, not, not the honor. This was a distinct honor of the woman that she would be able to bear children. Adam was incapable of doing this childbearing thing. The woman had this distinct honor to bear children. And God says, because of what you have done, I will multiply your pain in bearing children. I don't want to go too far into this, but I was there when Nora was born. (laughs) I know what this is talking about. It's rough stuff. Uh, He surely multiplied (laughs) pain in childbearing, and it's part of the curse. I've uh, never been so close to crying when, when, you know, uh, (laughs) just just from a a person screaming as I was when, when Nora was born. And it was part of the curse. It would have, could have been a beautiful, painless thing. This new life is brought into the world, but it happens through pain. That is part of the curse. We are supposed to see that, that that happens because the woman was tempted by Satan, and then she tempted her husband to follow as well. It goes on to say in the second half of verse 16, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, excuse me, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is a, a, a difficult thing. Many people have uh, tried to interpret this different ways. In fact, the way that this is written here uh, in this ESV translation um, is an interpretation. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It, in the literal uh, Hebrew, it says your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. Let me show you uh, from, what is it, Genesis 4-7. If you want to turn there, it's probably one page over in your Bible, maybe. 4-7. This is Cain and Abel. So Cain has uh, given a not good sacrifice. We'll we'll get to that soon um, in our series. But God says this to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You hear that? Your desire shall be for your husband. It says right here, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But what? You must rule over it. So in the very next chapter, we get a definition of what this is talking about. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Here we see sin, sin's desire is for you. What did sin want to do? What did sin want to do to Cain? Sin wanted to dominate Cain. Sin wanted to rule over Cain. So in the same way, we take that back to Genesis 3, one chapter before. 
Your desire will be to dominate your husband. Your desire will be to rule over your husband. Does that make sense how I'm, how I'm working this out? It is the, the, the exact same words used. And, and to help us explain the chapter before, we're, we're looking ahead at the same way the same author used it. Your desire will be uh, contrary to your husband. Your desire will be to rule over him, but he shall rule over you. We saw here again with Cain, it's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. You must dominate it. That, that's what's going on here. And here again, conversely, with marriage, but he shall rule over you. We looked at this uh, several weeks back in Genesis chapter 2, that, that marriage was supposed to be this beautiful harmony. You think of harmony in music terms as one high, one low, different timing. Things are, are different, and it makes for this beautiful music. In the same way, marriage was different roles, different uh, types of, of humans, male and female, and as they come together in marriage, it was to be this beautiful harmony of, of the one serving the other, the, the husband leading and providing for and protecting his wife, the, the wife supporting that and encouraging that and falling under that leadership. And it was to be this beautiful harmony. But here we see married people, I know you know what I'm talking about. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. You'll, you'll want to dominate him, but he shall rule over you. He will take his leadership position and he will steamroll you. He will, will oppress you. He will dominate the wife rather than lead her. But she'll want to step out of her bounds and dominate him. This is the tendency in all marriages. Why is there that tendency? Well, it's a part of the curse. It's to be a continual reminder that God's holiness is not to be tri tri uh, trifled with. God is perfectly holy. He made this beautiful marriage. But you guys in your marriage are going to use it wrongly. I'm going to mess up marriage for you as a continual reminder. That's what we see here, this disharmony in marriage. So to the woman, there was pain in childbearing, this dis disharmony in marriage. And by the way, there's this disharmony in all human relationships, really. All, these are just the, uh, the tip of the iceberg in the curse. But third, we look at the man. Verse 17, And to Adam he, God, said, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. I'm going to pause there again. Because you have done something. I, this isn't just God being capricious. Just I feel like, uh, you know, persecuting humans. Because you have done this, cursed is the ground because of you, it says. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. I, I can't go into breaking down every little bit of this, but the idea is, you remember again, in Genesis chapter 2 especially, it gave us this picture of this utopia with, with all sorts of fruits. They were delicious, they were, they were good, they were good to the eyes, and all they had to do to eat them, to provide, all Adam had to do to provide for Eve was pick them off the tree. And here you go, let's eat this delicious thing that will sustain us. That's all they had to do. But now we see in pain you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Instead of these perfect uh, plants that, that are, are growing perfectly and, and ripe, and 
It says there, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles. That's what the earth is going to grow. It says, you shall eat of the plants of the field. That's an interesting saying there. He was just allowed to eat of the garden, but now he has to eat of the plants of the field. That means he now has to work a field in order to get this food. You, know, you drive through Iowa or something, and you just see these lines of cornfields and potato fields and stuff. They're having to work hard to make that food. That's what's going on here. You're now going to have to work uh, to have these plants of the field. And then verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Work was given to Adam and Eve as a, as a good thing. It was to be enjoyed, that they would be productive, that they would, uh, you know, fill the earth, multiply, they would subdue the earth. But now work has become toilsome. It has become laborious. Can I get an amen on that? Anyone ever had, you might even love your job, by the way, but there are times, certainly, that you're like, you know what? The paperwork has stacked up too high. My hours have stacked up too high. The pressures are mounting against me. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to work like this. This is not what I wanted to do. And many people, by the way, we live, in, again, in America where we have much more choice over our vocation. Many countries, they're, they're, they're working hard just to survive through each day. That's what this is talking about. Work has become toilsome. Why? Why? To remind us of the holiness of God. This is what happens when you sin against a perfectly righteous and holy God. And finally, we see, uh, again, I'll start with verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What, what's that talking about? To dust you shall return. He's saying you're going to die, Adam. You were going to live forever. You were able to eat of the tree of life all you wanted. You were going to live forever, but now you're going to have a hard life. You'll be working uh, hard to have to provide and make bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We even see this further in verses 22 through 24. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That is, now, you know, God uh, knew what it was to go against it, but now Adam and Eve know it in an uh, experiential sense. It says, going on, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God set him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flashing sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God says, man has now become depraved. He now knows evil. And I don't want him to eat of the tree of life. He is now going to die. We could go into this for a while, but the tree of life evidently was a way, a means God had provided to sustain the life of humans. But now access to that tree is denied by these cherubim and this flaming sword guarding the way. They can no longer eat of this tree of life. They will now physically die. They had already spiritually died, uh, I believe, right when they sinned. They were no longer in relation to God. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. But now they would one day physically 
die. Let's think about this curse for a moment. <laughs> Death. This is a pretty big one. This is a, a huge enemy that we face. We all come into this world, and as, as uh, I don't want to seem uh, pessimistic, but the moment we come into this world, we hit a little timer, right? Our, our timer has begun. We have a, an expiration date. Not only do we have an expiration date, a day that we will one day die, but really, it feels like the moment we cross 30, I'm 30 right now, feels like the moment we cross 30, we are on our way. We are already dying. <laughs> we are deteriorating, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Our knees start to hurt. Uh, things start, we have to go to the doctor way more than we ever thought we would have to. Um, we begin, begin deteriorating. We begin on our way even to the grave. That's what we have to live with. And I'll, I'll tell you guys just on a, a personal note, in the last nine months, I have buried my grandmother and two uncles. One of those was yesterday, uh, had the funeral. After this service, I'm going to the funeral of a friend that I had from uh, Grace at high school um, growing up that um, he died. Death is real. It is very real to me right now. And I know not just the idea theoretically, I, I, I know the pain of it right now as I say goodbye to these people that I loved and appreciated and enjoyed spending time with. My, really, one of my greatest fears that I can think of, if you said, what is the worst thing that could happen to you, Jeff? I'd have to say, honestly, losing Hallie or Nora would be one of the hardest things that could possibly happen to me while I'm still alive. Death is an enemy. It is a, a terrible thing. It is this curse. I, I know many of you uh, are, are in the midst of, of fighting against death. It is the curse. It is a reminder that I am holy. And the day that you eat of this fruit and the day that you sin against me, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. And we now fight that every day of our lives. So, the curse reveals the holiness of God. Please get that. God is holy. By the way, this God is not uh, off in a room up in heaven somewhere. This God is everywhere, all the time. This holy God sees what you do. Uh, <laughs> I, I laugh at the, the children's songs sometimes that we now play with Nora. Oh, be careful, little child, what you do, for the Father up above is looking down in love. And I talk to Hallie, I'm like, that song is terrifying. <laughs> be, be careful what you do, because God's looking down, but it adds in love, so I guess that's better. God is holy. He wants you to get that. Every pain you feel is a part of the curse he placed on this world as permanent reminders until the new heavens and new earth, permanent reminders that he is not to be trifled with. God is holy. God is holy. You see a snake slither? God is holy. You experience spiritual warfare, think God is holy. Pain in childbirth, and sinful kids, you know. Marital conflict, pain in work, death, God is holy. God is holy. It should be a continual reminder of what happens when God is sinned against. This is the horrendous consequence for the horrendous act of sinning against a perfectly holy God who created us. We do not play with this God. 
God shows his holiness and his justice in these curses. Many people, I, I had a conversation with a, a guy not too long ago that was telling me, uh, I, I can accept the Bible, but I don't like the Old Testament because God's kind of mean in the Old Testament. <laughs> I'm like, well, you haven't read all of the New Testament if you think that God never does anything harsh in it because God remains holy to the end. Uh, there's a lake of fire <laughs> at the end of the, the book. If you read it, you should skip to the end. Anyway, God is not only holy. God is not only righteous and, and the, the righteous judge. He is those things fully to the greatest extent. But what we need to see here from the beginning, from the very first sin, is that the curse not only reveals the holiness of God, but you see in your notes, if you're working along at all, the curse reveals the grace of God. I have pounded into you, God is holy, God is holy, God is holy, and we must remember that. It's so important that we remember the holiness of God, but we cannot forget the grace of God, and we see it here on display 100% in Genesis chapter 3. Let's, let's look at this. With the, the serpent, God transformed and humiliated this tool of Satan's deception, right? God, uh, it's not God, Satan used the serpent, and God humiliates him, but God does not destroy him. God does not destroy the serpent. I, I'm not going to spend too long on, on the serpent, but even for Adam and Eve, they now have this continual reminder of the serpent. It is it's the grace of God that they have this continual reminder of the holiness of God, which, by the way, this will be true even in heaven, that there will be this continual reminder. Isaiah 65, 25, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Interesting. This is in heaven. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my, mount, my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is all eternity, even. The, the, the serpent will slither, and it will eat dust as a reminder of God's holiness. It is a grace of God that they had that reminder. Spiritual conflict. How is that a grace of God? How is that a grace of God that they would have spiritual conflict? Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on, on these, but if we did not have to deal with spiritual conflict, we as depraved people with, with hearts that, that tend towards sin, that tend towards uh, self-righteousness, that tend towards uh, our own abilities, we would not rely on God if it weren't for spiritual conflict. Jesus says, John fifteen five, without me you can do nothing, right? Without me you can do nothing. That's in a spiritual sense. I can, anyways, it's in a spiritual sense that Jesus is talking. So what does he say to do? Abide in me, right? That's the whole idea of John 15. Abide in me. Why? Because there's this spiritual conflict. You cannot win the day. The flesh cannot do anything of its, uh, on its own, without God. It causes us to rely on Him, to cling to Him. Spiritual conflict is, is actually a grace in that sense. Pain and childbearing. God puts pain in childbearing. This is, this is an interesting thing, but the very fact that He says you will have pain in childbearing means you're not dead right now. The wages of sin is death, right? Adam and Eve deserved death and full punishment right then, right there. But God says, because you have done this, it will multiply your pain and childbearing. Wait, wait a second. I'm still going to bear children? Th that, that, that's what Eve would have been thinking. I pointed at myself. I won't bear any children, but women. 
You know, they're, they're, the, the human race did not end in this moment. The very fact that children will be, be uh, had means that there will still be a multiplication of the human race. We see even in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam got it. He now names his wife Eve, saying she's the mother of all the living. She is going to have children. We are going to multiply. Yes, she's going to have uh, pain in childbearing, but we are going to continue on. We see in the, the, the harmony of marriage being broken. Yeah, it, it would be a struggle, but God still gave this gift of marriage. God still gave this uh, uh, intimacy at, at all these levels that marriage brings, and, and even allowing them to have kids together. There was still grace that God allowed marriage to continue. There's this pain and labor and this uh, work and provision. Yes, it would be toilsome. Yes, it would be work, but God still provides. God still does give us food to eat, work to do. And finally, death. How is death a grace of God? As I said, um, death is, is an enemy in, in many ways. It is a horrible thing that, to be ripped out of this, uh, this world. But if we read the Bible and we understand the Bible, we see that it is actually a grace of God that he does not leave us in this depraved world, in our sinful flesh. God didn't make Adam and Eve, they actually lived like 900 years, I think. Uh, that's a long time to live as a sinner. I'd be pretty tired of it by then. But um, God, God says, you, this won't, won't last forever. These, these light momentary afflictions, right? Paul says these light momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we'll, we're going to get to that in a second, but we have these these afflictions we, we buried my, my uncle again yesterday it was such a, a mix a, such a mix of um, man I'm gonna miss him I'm gonna miss him and the, my other uncle that, that died uh, recently and my grandma I'm gonna miss them but all of them were in such pain they were struggling so hard that in, in a sense I, I, I say you get to be with Jesus right now you get to be free from this pain you were in such pain, now you know a joy that I have never experienced. There's a grace, even in death. God, you know, uh, pushes them out of the garden and, and blocks the entrance to the tree of life uh, with, with the flaming sword and the cherubim. That was a grace of God. It, it sounds mean, doesn't it? Like this flaming sword, and it does show the holiness of God. But in a sense it was, hey, don't, you don't want to live forever. You don't want to live forever in this state. But what we're going to get to now, as we look at this, is there was more. The greatest picture of both God's holiness and God's grace are foretold in these verses. We've talked about this already uh, the last time we were in Genesis. But we see in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Then, it's, then it changes tenses. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the picture is that this he, there will be this offspring of the woman, there will be this enmity that, uh, of the offspring, but there will be this offspring, this particular one, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the picture is, I, I, we've spent a lot of time on this before, but the picture is, yes, this, this he, this Savior, 
heel would be bruised, but as his heel is getting bruised, he would be bruising the head of Satan, giving a fatal blow to Satan's head. That is, of course, talking about Jesus. So, Jesus is this offspring, the seed of the woman, but how was his heel bruised? Let's think about this. This is the greatest display of God's holiness and his grace. Holiness and grace. Let's think about this. Because God is so holy and so just, sin cannot be brushed under the rug. It cannot simply be forgiven in the sense that it's just wiped away. It cannot happen because God is holy. It has to be paid for. So sin has to be paid for either by the one who committed it or by a sinless substitute, one who does not deserve that wrath but takes it. And so we think of Jesus, God the Son, comes into this world, takes on human flesh. He steps into the curse, by the way. You think about that. He steps into this curse, having to live in this this cursed existence, this weakness of human flesh, He's still fully God, but he's now also fully human. He lives a perfect, sinless life. Then we know how how it ends. He's mocked, he's beaten, and he's crucified on a cross. But that's not all. While on the cross, the just judgment, because of God's holiness that had been defiled, the just judgment for sinners, was poured out on Jesus. That wrath that was deserved was poured out on Jesus. Deserved. God could not brush it under the rug. He had to do something with it. Yet in his grace, he says, I'll give a substitute. And that's what Jesus is. He pours the wrath out on Jesus. God the Son. Jesus takes that full punishment for the sin. Galatians even tells us that Jesus became a curse for us. He he took the fullness of the curse on the cross. But we know that Jesus, being God, broke the chains of death. It could not hold him. He defeated Satan by that, by taking our punishment. That is why Romans 8 can say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan was defanged in that moment on the cross because there was no more condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Holiness and grace collide. God is so holy that he cannot let this sin go, so he's gracious. He wants to show this love to humans, to sinful humans, undeserving humans, and so he pours that wrath out on Jesus on the cross. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. The curse in all of its ways is to reveal to us the holiness of God. It's not to be trifled with. He is perfect. He is perfectly moral. He gives us his morals, and we sin against him. We deserve death. He is holy, but God is gracious. God is gracious. He gives us good gifts, even though we do not deserve it. This is what Jesus says, by the way. We've got to do something with that. John 3.16, uh, we know that verse, but John 3.16 through 18, For God so loved the world, that's, that's the grace of God, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those are Jesus' words. Because of the holiness of God, if you do not believe in me, that condemnation is coming. That wrath is coming. You have stored up wrath for the day of judgment because God is holy. But because I am gracious as well, I have paid for those sins. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. I hope you see that. That even here in Genesis chapter 3, the holiness and the grace of God on display. We'll, we'll, later, it, you obviously we see it fully in the cross, but even here it was foretold in Genesis 3.15. I recommend that you memorize that verse, internalize what it means, because it is right there at the beginning, right when sin happened. We are going to taste the sting of these curses now, but as uh, Keith read earlier, there, there's a day that these curses will no longer be on us. They will have served their purposes. They will have served in showing the holiness of God and showing the grace of God. And Paul says, uh, man, I'm trying to remember, Paul says, Romans 8.18, I think it is, For I consider that the suffering, sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You get that? This curse is grace to us. It shows us the holiness of God. It shows us the grace of God. And I consider that these sufferings, because of this curse, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Bring it on, God. Remind me of your holiness. Remind me of your grace. I need it. This is God's grace. This is God's grace. We're going to taste the, the sting of these curses now. But in God's good and wise time, Jesus will come again. He will put an end finally to all death. He will put an end finally to all disease and corruption and decay. We will be with God forevermore in paradise, new heaven, new earth, without any of these things. We, we see that in seed form. We see that in a glimpse right here in Genesis 3. Now I'm going to end with the, this communion table that's reserved for those who have trusted in Jesus and who are walking with him in faith and obedience. But I just want you to think about this. Even to me, the most tragic chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, most tragic chapter in the Bible, even in that chapter, we see the grace of God. Even in that chapter. Is this a God that you want to continue sinning against? Is this the God who you want to continue rebelling against? That even when the first people living in paradise rebel against him, he says, guys, the, the curse is coming. It's got its purposes, but here's my grace along with it. There will be a Savior even that will pay for your sins, that will put your guilt and shame away. He covers them, by the way, uh, with, with his animal skins, another foreshadowing of a death for covering. That is in Jesus is that a God who you would want to continue sinning against? Do you want to believe the lie of Satan? Do you want to believe the lie of the world that, oh, it's not a big deal to sin against this God? He doesn't really care. 
You might say, well, it's not that big of a deal because Jesus paid for the sin. You don't get it. <laughs> you do not get it if you say, oh, well, I'll just throw that my tab on Jesus and keep going the way I want to go. You do not get it because the, 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 the death of Jesus, the, the whole point is that God is so holy that Jesus had to die for our sin. That's the whole idea. But it's God's grace that he did, in fact, send Jesus to die in our place for our sins. Is that a God who you want to continue sinning against, continue rebelling against? Some of you may not have trusted in Jesus at all. By the way, if you're saying I'm going to throw my tab on Jesus, that's a pretty good indicator that you have not <laughs> yet understood the gospel, been reborn, and, and now walking in faith. So maybe we need to trust Jesus for the first time. We see here in Genesis 3 the holiness of God and the grace of God in light of that. And I want to trust him. You, you can do that today. You can say, I see my sinfulness. I see how I'm just like Adam and Eve. But I see your grace in spite of that. And I want it, God. I want you to give me that new life. This may mean that, that you just need to be reminded. You know, we, we have this familiarity with God. And we be begin to, to take on culture's ideas that, nah, it's not that big of a deal, you know. No, it is a big deal. God is holy. It, it, he is holy. And God is gracious. Why would you not want to serve a God who is so gracious to you? Maybe this is a refresher for you. I'd ask that during this communion time, you, you, you talk to God. What, what do I need to do in light of this? Your holiness and your grace. Your, your justice mingled with your mercy. Let's pray.